Hey, Spin Ratters! We have a special episode for you today of the Dickheads Podcast. We are talking with Norman Spinrad. He is the author of many awesome works of science fiction, ranging from Men in the Jungle, Agent of Chaos, The Iron Dream, which we've talked about here many times as the dick-like suggestion, Greenhouse Summer, which was about climate change way before cli-fi was a thing. Also, don't forget to check out part two of our Spin Ratter special, which is a bonus episode about the novella The Journal of the Plague Years, which is his take on the HIV crisis. I'm joined by longtime AIDS activist Mark Conlon, and it's a really cool episode, so please check that one out too. But I must warn you, we had so many technological difficulties trying to get this interview recorded with Norman, who lives in Paris, France, that we put him in a very bad mood before we started this interview. He was not very happy with my first question, but things get much better from there. So please enjoy this interview and read lots of Spinrad. So I wanted to um, thank you, Norman, for being with us. I'm really sorry about all the uh, technical glitches that we had getting you on here. But uh, I know it's really important for our listeners to hear from you as a person, that uh, a writer that we all respect. But I wonder if we could just start with um, being born in the, in the Bronx and growing up there. How did you discover science fiction? Uh, I don't like that question. I was born in New Bronx. I discovered science fiction by reading some magazines. That's not an interesting question. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I was just trying to get us, like, going and get a start for things. Solarians was your was your first novel, but um, Agent of Chaos and Men in the Jungle quickly followed, and it seemed like those were definitely where you were starting to work with a political mindset which I think is interesting because at the time, you know, Roddenberry was doing Wagon Train to the Stars, but you were doing really intense political stuff. Could you tell us? No, oh. I, don't, I don't understand the question. You're asking me when I started writing? Well, yeah, I'm just trying to, trying to get a, um, a basis for, because a lot of our listeners really like to talk about the new wave since, you know, we do a lot of, um, you know, because we're based on Philip K. Dick and, and that kind of thing. And I think that you were doing as just as exciting, more exciting stuff at the time. And I think it would be really good for our listeners to um, to explore the stuff in your early more, days. You have, to speak more, you have to speak real clearly. You're not getting, you're talking too fast and you're not, and, and, and the line isn't good. Ask me, ask me. Ask me a question again, whatever it is, but not about my boyhood or going to school or boring things like that. Okay. I, I was just really interested in um, in the early days when uh, a lot of science fiction was a lot of science fiction was really just um, kind of wagon trains to the stars and space opera. You were doing really intense and interesting political things in books like Agents of Chaos and Men in the Jungle, uh, really breaking new ground. I was just wondering if you could talk talk to us about 
those early days and, and, um, and what types of things you were trying to write and what kind of critical well, stuff were you right, looking at? All right. This was on early in my career. This would have been about 1965. Uh, the first, or maybe a little bit earlier, when Harlan Ellison was doing uh, uh, Dangerous Visions. And in the States, Dangerous Visions was the first real attempt to make science fiction some a more serious literature. And the way Harlan had put it, had wanted it, was to, you know, shock people, to print things that nobody else could print. Uh, and so I had a story called, um, uh, well, it was Men in the Jungle. It was, it was, a, it was a, 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 a novelette or something, but I ended up selling it as a novel. And then I sold the very first story that Harlan had for uh, Dangerous Visions, which was um, Carcinoma Angels, which almost was sold to uh, Playboy for a lot of money, but uh, they didn't quite buy it, so Harlan what that was the very first thing um, and then I sold the uh, I did the novel of, of Men in the Jungle uh, and it was published by, by Doubleday in hardcover in about 1967 now yeah something like that and and, and then uh, well that's 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 how it started and in England the new wave started in a different kind of way uh, about the same time, but independently, by uh, Michael Moorcock, who uh, took over New World's magazine uh, and and turned it into a kind of um, uh, New World's magazine, turned it into a kind of uh, a, a literary magazine, but also a kind of science fiction magazine. He was trying to put the two things together again. What 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 the idea was that science fiction was. Uh, Writing trivial stuff, tri trivial fiction, uh, in a way, in a way, trivial fiction, um, about great big serious things, and and so-called literary fiction was using much better uh, literary quality to talk about what was in its own navel. So that was the beginning of of, of the new wave, basically. There were other things there too. It, 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 it started yeah. in England with might. Uh, and the magazine, and and uh, then I well, all right, that's how it started. Well, right, and Michael Moorcock played an important role too because he, uh, if my understanding, of my research is correct, saved Baron Bug Jack and really helped you to get that book out, which was a very uh, forward-thinking book. Could you tell us a little bit about Baron Bug Jack and and what happened with that book? Well, what happened was um, after after. Uh, Dublin published uh, The Man in the Jungle, I got a contract to write Bob Jack Barron. Um, and uh, Man in the Jungle had been you know, a pretty uh, a, a groundbreaking book uh, in some ways. Uh, because there was a lot of ground to break because science fiction was regarded as something for, for teenagers at best. And you couldn't have sex, you couldn't have dirty words, you couldn't have politics. You know, it, it, that's what it was. Um, with exceptions and stuff that was maybe published by in Playboy, uh, but basically that's what it, and, and you know basically that's the sort of thing that they that, that they wanted. Uh, these were restraints. There were some very good books written under those constraints, but you you you're going uh, with, you know with limits. 
this is the same kind of thing with, with about the same time that uh, William Burroughs published Naked Lunch, which he hadn't been able to publish for years, and and so on and so forth. So I asked the editor, uh, Larry Ash, Ashme, what are the restraints? This was after, on Bob Jack Pound. And he said, no restraints, don't worry, you know, <laughs> terrific. Uh, you know, because I, you know, I, I said, you sure? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Admittedly, this was a three martini lunch. But, um, so I wrote it, um, the way I wrote it, um, that it had to be, well, you know, I wrote it that way. And when I turned into, um, um, to Double Day, they told me they wouldn't print this book unless I took out all the sex and politics. And I said, well, that'd be like a very short novelette. And so, uh, I kept spent a year trying to sell it as a mainstream book. Um, but in those days, you couldn't do that, especially if you had a record as, as writing science fiction. So, um, finally, I sort of gave up and published it as a science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. But before that, before I made that deal, there was a Milford conference where Michael Moorcock was there, where people, you know, writers came there and, and read each other's stuff. Mike read the first two chapters of, uh, of Bob Jack Barron, and he wanted to do it as a serial for uh, uh, New Worlds in England, which he did do, a uh, six, six-part serial. Uh, so that about the time that that was happening was, was when I made this the sale to uh, a guy named Ernstberger at at, uh, at whatever the, whatever the house was in those days, uh, and that's about the story of how that happened. Um, and Mike was publishing uh, Barefoot in the Head by Brian Aldis, really you know very interesting stuff. Um, and then there was a big thing that happened in England. With, with the Parliament, because New Worlds had a um, some money from the from, from the you know from the literary from the cultural whatever they called it of the government themselves, and uh, there was a big whole you know they were angry about that. It was denounced in in, 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 the, in the Parliament, uh, and then it was sold in England. Uh, 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 spoke about the same time as it came out in the states. That's the, that's the short version. Now, with Bud Jack Barron, I, I would feel like, and I know when we interviewed Barry Maltzberg, he said that uh, one of the things about writing science fiction in this era is that he's had this horror of seeing some of these things coming true. And I'm wondering, since it's a show that's pretty much, or a book that's pretty much about reality TV long before it existed, if, if you had similar feelings with that book or, or any others in your career. Oh, no, if, if I had, if that, if I had tried to do that earlier? Well, just if, if you had a feeling that, um, you were seeing a lot of that book being mirrored in, in, uh, contemporary society now. Um, no, I don't understand what you're asking me. This, before, before the New Worlds and, uh, uh and Dr. Karen and, 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 and Men in the Jungle and, 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 uh, and, and Dangerous Visions, uh, Science fiction is regarded as um, basically fiction for kids, mm-hmm. and with those restraints, those are your books. The magazines, there are a lot of different magazines for, uh, um, uh, but the story is a little bit more sophisticated, mm-hmm. uh, a little more adventurous, maybe. 
but there were still restraints. One of the things that really got people about Bugs Act Brown, they, you know, they said it was dirty words and sex, which today you just see in any, um, you know, uh, you know, the young adult novel, uh, in those days you couldn't do that. You couldn't talk about specific politics and name political parties and things like that. It was also the time of the counterculture versus whatever the other thing at that time was. So it was, the whole thing was political. It was about the time, about earlier than that, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer was finally published, uh, which, which, uh, because before, before that, Burroughs couldn't publish, um, uh, Naked Lunch, and nobody could publish, uh, in, in, you know, in a regular way, um, stuff with, 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 with dirty words and, and specific sex. Uh, so this is all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you feel uh, that that yeah, lane opened up a little bit more after Dangerous Visions, that you were able to go into that territory yeah. a little bit more? Yeah, after, well, after that, after, after, after Bojack Barron and Dangerous Visions and uh, Barefoot in the Head, uh, although Brian had a lot of trouble with that in the States, uh, yeah, it, it got opened up um, in, 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 in England more quickly and more recently because there had always been a little bit more of a serious regard to, to literary science fiction there. Uh, yeah, then it, then, then it broke up, then, then it, you know, then all that was, it wasn't, it was movies, it was music, it was, uh, it was science fiction, it was other kind of fiction, like, uh, mm-hmm. like Burroughs, who was on both sides of the line, uh, and uh, Phil Dick, mm-hmm. uh, at least after that. Um, so, um, then everything changed. Uh, then those, 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 those things were broken, and that was like, uh, oh, you know, 65, uh, 66, 67, like that, up until the middle of, uh, of the 1970s, I would say. Right. Well, and even after, uh, you broke ground in that way, uh, then, uh, a couple years later, you write The Iron Dream, which was also very bold and, I'm sure, a very risky concept, uh, partially because you never pulled the camera back and you stuck to the concept of writing a science fiction novel as Hitler. Um, how did, where did that concept come from, and, and what can you tell us about writing of The Iron that, Dream? It's that, a came from, that came from the, uh, uh, a discussion where I was living in London with, with Mike Moorcock, who, on the side, under various names, were very quick, successfully, uh, you know, uh, sword and whatever they call that stuff, you know, fantasy, sword fantasy stuff. And I said, Mike, how do you write this stuff? And he said, oh, well, uh, you just uh, uh, pick out some piece of history, history or myth and put a lot of, uh, of Freudian imagery in it, and that's how you do it. And something clicked in my head, and I said, oh, like Nazi Germany did that. And that's how it happened. Um, uh, and that's, that, that, that gave me the idea of the, uh, of the Iron Dream, because um, at the same time that, that, they were, that were, they were writing a lot of space opera in terms of science fiction, uh, a great big fan of Wagnerian opera mm-hmm. was Adolf Hitler. And that's sort of, so the, the, the book is about both the relationship between that kind of science fiction and, 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 and Nazi psychology and the history of the Third Reich. Yeah, it's, it's a book that uh, many of our 
guess that, that uh, the Iron Dream has been brought up many, many times on our show. Uh, so it's one that we are definitely excited to talk to you about. Um, I know that the book was indexed by the Federal Department for Media Harmful to Young Persons. Uh, this is in Germany. This is in Germany. There's right. no problem anywhere else. Right. And um, so, and I'm sure it was a particularly hard <laughs> sell in, in, with a German edition, but um, I, I think if anyone re you know looks closely at the book, they can see the, the kind of the point you were trying to make. I'm just interested in, in how you felt about like the German reaction to the Iron Dream. The German reaction to the Iron Dream is not what you think it was. Uh, they, there was a war there about the you know Nazi pictures and stuff like that. No, there was big court cases that went on for eight years for the topic courses in Germany. And I read, my German is not very good, but I, but I read some of these, some of this legal papers. And basically what they were saying, the people who want to stop it, you know, were saying, we understand that this is um, an anti-Nazi book, but that's because we're smart. And people who are younger than us are not as smart as we were. And, and they might read it wrong because they were stupid. Um, basically, that was the argument. Um, so there was not, um, there weren't any, you know, uh, neo-Nazis going for The only time it was reviewed by Nazis was that the American Nazi Party, which said it was a very good fantasy thing, but why did that ruin it at the end by, by knocking the shit out of it with a phony, uh, uh, review? Uh, but other than that, um, there, there was no misunderstanding of that book except in that legal. And the people who the people who tried to keep who kept it on uh, on the index in Germany for eight years, um, none of them believed that it was a Nazi book either. It was really that uh, they thought they were smart and other people were stupid. Well, okay. So underrated in in your catalog of books, in my opinion, is your collection other other Americas. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. And the last novella in the book has a really interesting character. Um, how did you come up with the idea to write a novella with Norman Spinrad as a character in it, and what were you trying to accomplish with that novel? Oh, you mean, uh, uh, uh La Vie Continue? Yes, La Vie Continue, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, it was the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the Gorbachev period in, in, in Russia, uh, that book was actually written in California, mm -hmm. um, but I, I and my wife at that time I had had come to no, had, you know I don't know we were there on a on a, um, a vacation and, and and the whole idea came to me of, of um, like that sort of thing. I don't always know where the ideas come from, but right. that was it had to do with um, what I later called the Wild East. When, when everything was in, in flux there, in, in Soviet Union, was falling apart, um, Romania, uh, war, the Berlin Wall was coming out, so I was writing stuff like that. Right. Well, and, um, another, uh, novella in there is, uh, Street Meat. And, uh, as, uh, I'm a longtime vegan myself, and, um, I, that story, of course, really appealed to me. I like the idea. It seemed to be exploring, the reaction to homelessness exploding in the eighties—is um, is that kind of what you were going for? Well, which one? Which 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 one are you talking about? Street Meat, the first novella and other. Oh, Street Meat. Well, 
I don't know if that would be, I mean, that was a, a dirty, funny story, but, uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> it was pretty gross. And the only thing that was happening in magazine, and that was a different thing. Well, maybe it was the same thing. That I said, there was somebody that said, we're taking a, a grumpy dump. And, and, and the editor said, you had to take out grumpy. Uh, um, <laughs> too much. Um, again, that was just a short story that wasn't really all that serious. Mm. Um, I, I really enjoy Other Americas. I think it's um, uh, a really great collection, and uh, I think it's a really good timepiece for looking at kind of what you were thinking at the time. I know you've been quoted as saying politically that you're an uh, anarcho-syndicalist, and I, I realize that um, not many people necessarily automatically realize that um, you're talking about a non-hierarchical system that leans towards the workers. And I know Ursula Gwynn is very well known for writing anarchist fiction, such as The Dispossessed, which is really on the nose. But I think your spacefaring series is where we really get to see some of your anarchist views. Is that, or, or am I wrong? Is there a better source of looking at those? I'm not, I don't know. I don't get back what you said about what Ursula said. Well, she wrote um, The Dispossessed, right? And um, I think it's a very on-the-nose anarchist novel. It's you know, it takes place in a very obviously anarchist society. And I think you explore, which, one, which one is this? The Dispossessed. Um, oh. From the 60s. Um, and it's very well known in anarchist circles. People read The Dispossessed and they share it and, and they talk, and in anarchist circles they talk about it a lot. And I think that you're very underrated as far as your anarchist voice, uh, comparatively to Le Guin. But I think, like, The Void's Captain Tale and your space, second Space Variant series... Oh, writing stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do really think that they explore your anarchist views. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your cynicalist views uh, to just, like, put it out there for those science fiction readers who um, are looking for anarchist views in well, science fiction. Well, the idea really there that started the whole thing was that, that, was, that I didn't, I believed... You know, when, we, when people write in the far future, they always have some kind of the thing that happens to the earth or something, so they don't have to go through the history of everything. But I was convinced, and still am, that that would never happen. So it was far, far future, which, which I was trying to do. And I was doing it in um, what I call Gringo, which is a, a combination of, of, of all kinds of different languages. So well, it's really English. And that came from two comedians who did that masterfully, which was Sid Caesar and, and Ernie Kovacs, who did series skits where, I mean, Kovacs did one where, uh, it was a German film, a German, a German company shooting a, a, a an Italian western in, in Italy, but it was really in English. Mm -hmm. uh, he really did this. Uh, uh, he really did this. Uh, so, uh, it was partly that, and it was partly, you know, I mean, a series, but it was a serious attempt at showing what, like, you know, 3,000 3, years in the future would be like when, as it came directly out of our, our, our their past and, and our present, rather than the kind of, uh, the kind of stuff that you see in, uh, in so much, um, space opera. Mm -hmm. Space what? opera. I got to tell you. <laughs> No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just, uh, I really love Void's Captain's Tales. Um, I think it's just um, a really great uh, 
book in your in your canon. Another one that I really enjoyed was um, uh, World A World Between, which you wrote in 1979, and it deals with gender issues, utopia, and electronic democracy, which is all like really heavy <laughs> issues. But I, I really like how you dealt with the the concept of electronic democracy in 1979. And um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little like bit that. about that. Yeah. Part. I not only invented electronic democracy, but I, well. Before Al, Al, Al Gore, I actually invented the internet. <laughs> right. Um, for better or for worse. Um, um, I wrote that thing because um, I wrote a story that well, had something about the uh, relationship between men and women and stuff like that, which was published in a in, in men's magazine, uh, uh, edited by a woman, and she said... Uh, I, I like this story, but the first begin the beginning of it, there's too much talk about about you know feminism and stuff like that. Why don't you just put that in a separate thing and write it? So that's what happened. Uh, uh, and that kind of um, that kind of thinking got to writing that, combined with the idea of of, of, of electronic democracy. Because I was also one of the first people to use it, to use uh, television. This was in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where they were experimenting with a system where some people had little things that they could press uh, to, to say yes or no and stuff on television. And they asked me to come there and uh, and play with it and write it. So from that, from Columbus, Ohio, to uh, uh, Pacific Island and outer space, that's the um, sort of the invention of the... Uh, Mm-hmm. the internet, especially as used in politics, except they're much more, well, sophisticated than they are now. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's how that one got done. Yeah, and, uh, it's really, Good. obviously very forward thinking. Now, one that we recently did a, um, a special episode, we recorded it, and we're going to release it with your interview about Journal of the Plague Years, which, for us, was, was, uh, just a truly phenomenal book. We, we loved it. And we did a close to an hour breaking down that book. Um, and this is a story about AIDS. And it seems like no one was wanting to really touch that issue at all at the time. Oh. Yeah. And so this Absolutely. dystopia views a world with sex police, quarantine zones, and all that. Could you tell us, like, where this book came from in the process well, of making what it? Happened was, what happened was, um, I wanted to do it as a novel. And this was a for Bantam, who's my publisher at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, we can't publish that as a novel. But we're doing a, 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 thousand, a, a an anthology of original stories. We'll buy, uh, we'll, buy, we'll buy a novella version for that. So originally it was published in this, in the, in this uh, collection. And then later on it was published as a short novel and stuff like that. Yeah, that was, that was real poison. Uh, it was so bad that, <laughs> that although you would, that they would publish it as part of the book they were publishing. They wouldn't publish it as a self-standing book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's how that came to be like that. Well, and I like how the book was written with these kind of um, kind of fake histories going backwards. And I actually think the structure worked really well in the nova- in the novella length. So uh, you know, we found it uh, really great, but. Um, we actually had a, an AIDS activist from that was work that was doing AIDS work in the 80s and 90s who joined us on the episode and 
he was, uh, just so you know, um, very impressed by your take on everything um, and was very excited to read it. Um, another topic that's really important or really uh, popular right now is climate fiction and cli-fi, and you were way ahead of the ball with that in 1993 with Deus Ex and 99 with Greenhouse Summer. You predicted a future yeah. in Greenhouse Summer where corporations profited by doing temporary fixes. And um, in what ways have you seen the, the climate crisis come, come out in the last 20 years that you expected or didn't expect, having written Greenhouse Summer? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, what hasn't happened yet, which they're now starting talking about, mm-hmm. is that then they start messing around with with the with 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 the, with the new me- weather with with themselves, different parts of the world, and so it's 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 post in a way greenhouse summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes place after it's all happened with you know crocodiles in the sand and. Uh, the garden of of, 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 the world being Siberia and stuff like that. Uh, that's what's happening. Uh, it, it's certainly happening now. And they're starting to talk about how to f- cool things down by selling stuff, by putting, uh, various things in the atmosphere or and stuff like that. It's just like in the book. Um, but the big, the, also, the one part, another part of that book, which of course made it controversial, was, was that Communism had failed, you know, mm. but that doesn't mean that capitalism was not going to fail too. So this is this is this is a future where it's neither capitalism nor communism. It's a kind of syndicalism, uh, anarchism. But the big thing being that, um, you know, people write about uh, uh, other people's other other cultures in the future, which are more evolved in one kind of way or another, but they don't usually do uh, evolved morality. So in, in this in this book, that's what I was trying to do, that even the gangsters um, are, are more moral than, than the people in our present. And and the, we, we, the, 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 the Siberians said, well, if we have to go back to freezing our asses off to save the planet, we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has not happened yet. Instead, we have Donald Trump. Who uh, um, doesn't realize he can make money out of this? But maybe, if you say, yeah. So, so I, I, I'm not surprised by this at all. No, I'm um, sure you're not. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and I think I, with all the science fiction that that you know, I mean, we we focus a lot on the '60s right now and the Golden Age because that's where we are in, in PKD's canon um, currently on the show. And uh, we're also doing a series on all the Hugo winners of the 60s. And so it's funny to see, like, here we have this timeline now in our reality with Donald Trump, where we have something that's almost far scarier than a lot of the stuff that you guys were predicting during the new wave. Um, and that's got to be hard to watch as somebody who's been around doing this for so long. Well, uh, Donald Trump's not something I, I imagine would happen in, in, in that extreme. Although I did write a comedy in which, uh, a guy who's a, a used car salesman wearing an Uncle suit, uh, Uncle Sam suit, uh, does get elected president and gets thrown full of drugs and, and, and became a sex maniac. Uh, this was not, and this was, this was comedy. 
It wasn't now, meant to be a prediction. Um, <laughs> now it's not comedy. <laughs> right. Um, can you it's tell us, too, cool, about... It's not funny. Right. Well, and, and uh, so more recently, you worked on a book called The Sound of the Gun, and um, you did you were able to release it in Europe, but I believe it, w- it was never able to come out here. Um, well, it's finally, it was finally published by a small publisher. Okay. It, it, yeah, I had to buy my copy from, from uh, I had to get it imported well, from Europe. Well, you know, small publisher through Amazon and all that shit. Right. You know, uh, I, I, I could not sell that in the States. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us? One editor, one editor said, rejecting it, not only will not buy this book, but the no editor in the United States will touch it with a fork. <laughs> and, which turned out to be true. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, it, and I knew it was going to be a hard thing to get published because it was for the same reason that it was something that had to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sympathy for the devil, as the Rolling Stones put it. Uh, um, uh, and then it was published in France and, and a few other places like that, but, uh, uh you know, more seriously, seriously, but, um, right. that was one, and I, and I never tried to get it, I never tried to sell that on, on, on a partial or, or an outline, cause I knew that was foodless. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I just went, I actually started writing a novelette, and then after 40 pages or so, I realized I was in the beginning of a novel. So I just, had to keep going. Nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. Don and I were in New York. Well, at, at, at you know, uh, at at at, at nine eleven, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was asked by various magazines to write something about it, some of which I did. And people started to write novels about their lives, what happened to that, and, and people were saying to me, "Why don't you write a novel like that?" And I said, "It's not. It's, it's too early, uh, and that's not what I want to write anyway." Uh, and that, I wonder, it was, was something like, oh, that's Osama the gun. Um, uh, right. Now, you're currently having the uh, same, a similar struggle with a book that you've recently written. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about this book and, and what you're trying to do so maybe we can help uh, get some interest for it? Well, um, it was uh, Hemingway who said, the writer is the enemy of the state. Or should be the enemy of the state. Um, and science fiction, which I call a speculative fiction, is, is looking ahead. Um, and in baseball, the umpires say, say, I, I call them as I seize them. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm, you know, that, that's, that's what I've been doing all from the very beginning. Uh, and it's gotten me into a lot of trouble. Uh, it's gotten me into, you know, you, you, uh, I, you know, right now I've got books sitting around that I had to put on, uh, uh, um, Amazon myself and one which was really good one, uh, the most recent one really novel was, uh, The People's Police, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I, which I couldn't sell in the States, but I, 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 I yeah. well, no, it was published. It was published by Tor, but they put a, a really racist co- cover on it. When the book is saying exactly the opposite thing, and and that, and even the idea of of, of positive police with people like that was a bit too much. But I did get it sold, and they did publish it. Uh, but they published it very badly because of all kinds of upheavals that went on it at at, at Tor Books. It's 
especially when David Hartwell, who was great editor of my editor for a long time, had a tragic accident, uh, and it was his book, and they didn't give a shit about it, and they just didn't do anything with the hardcover, and then they didn't, wouldn't bring out a paperback. So, so, uh, um, you know, uh, and then I just had another thing happen, where I wrote a, a, a novella called, uh, General Strike, about generals going on strike. And, um, I had, I, I'm not gonna name names because it's embarrassing, but it was an editor of a, of a magazine who said, uh, I really want to publish this, but they won't let me, like, but I know damn well they won't let me do it. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've had a lot of problems like that. Um, and I've had a lot of problems, you know, I think that, uh, a lot of the things that, that, uh, uh, were positive things artistically in my work, uh, were, uh, you know, uh, commercially a, a negative. Um, um, you know, uh, I know you, what the name is, you know, you're named after, after Phil Dick. Well, mm-hmm. Phil Dick had, but, you know, didn't really get out of the science fiction hole until that, until the first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was doing that, I was, you know, we were good, a good friend of Phil, and before that he was asking me a very important question. Would it be better for me to buy another old car? Or put, or buy some new tires for this one. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of level that things were in those days. But Phil kept going. Um, and finally lucked out, but didn't live to, uh, enjoy it. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, uh, uh, what can I say? Uh, people have told me, in a way, that I'm deliberately blackballed. Uh, um, uh, uh I never used to believe that, mm-hmm. but now I sort of believe it. It's not so much that I personally am blackballed. It's that what can be published in science, the, the things that I want to do, the things that I write, are not what's being published in science fiction. And on the other side, once you have a reputation as a science fiction writer, whatever it is uh, you're doing, um, it's very hard to get published any other way. When I was president of the SFWA, uh, you give a prize for Grandmaster every year, and I wanted to give it to Kurt Vonnegut, and I had to really argue with people, although I could have done it unilaterally, but Vonnegut wouldn't accept it, because mm. it would have been a bad move for him. Mm. Um, Brian Aldis, who was very good, very very well regarded literally in, in, in England, always had probably been published in this state, always complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, so I don't think that, I, it, 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 for me, to be honest about it, it's two things. One is, um, the stuff that I, it's stuff that I write, um, uh, and, but it's also, um, you know, uh, I don't take shit. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I don't, uh, um, you know, commercially, maybe that, that you know, I, I have never been late with anything or anything like that. I've, I've anybody who's who worked as an editor with me, except for one guy who was an idiot, uh, I, uh, whose name is Castanar, by the way, no, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, Edward Castanar. Uh, um, but, uh, but we'll come to the business of it. Um, mm-hmm. um, when I was screwed, I, um, I, I fought back. Sometimes I won and sometimes I lost. Um, and that car, 
you know, that combined with um, what has happened uh, with science fiction literature particularly and, and, and other things as well, as, as, as you know, if somebody, if an editor says, I really, I believe everything in this novella, I really want to publish it, but I can't, and this magazine has recently published a bunch of my other stuff, well, how can you say that's not political? Right. It's political. Uh, it doesn't, if that, if that had been written by somebody else, they would have gotten the same thing. Right. Well, they would have, they wouldn't have published it if it not bummed by Stephen King or whatever the fuck it was. Um, so it's a combination. Right, so, so Norman, I'd like okay. to, like, before we close up, I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about, um, some of the influence of editors because that's one of the things we've learned a lot about since we've started doing dickheads. Specifically, we've seen huge influence by Tony Boucher and Don Wolheim on the path that uh, Phil took to get to where he was. And you just mentioned David Hartwell, who I know his absence has been... A great, a, a great editor, yes. Yeah, his absence has been a huge well, deal for... Uh, I know I'm a huge I'm, fan of Al Paul Wilson. I'm getting towards the end of this myself because I'm very tired right now. But uh, sure. uh, uh, maybe. But I was once... Uh, asked to give the the, the the Hugo for best editor, mm-hmm. and what I got up and said was, "You can tell I can tell you the history of science fiction in the names of about six editors, or maybe seven. You know, G- Gernsback, Campbell, uh, Boucher, uh, uh, who you know, uh, Betty Ballantyne, um, Fred Pohl." And so on and so forth. So there have really been very, very Mike Moorcock. Um, there have been there have been very important editors. Um, most of the magazine editors. There weren't that many. There were some book editors, but that really um, were um, instrumental in in, in 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 the history of, of, of the whole literature from from Gernsback all the way up to to uh, to Mike Moorcock and. Uh, Ernsberger, uh, we had a pick who I didn't name, I'm gonna name a dozen people. Oh, maybe I have, I did name a dozen people. Bang, 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 bang. And that was the whole thing. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think, uh, rather unusually, compared to every other thing else, mm-hmm. Alice Turner at Playboy, uh, um, to a lot of other things, a lot of really good editors. There were some bad editors too, but in the end, Bad editors didn't accomplish anything in particular in involving this thing. But, um, I think it's a, you know, it, it's, it, it, in the beginning, in the old pulp days, you're always fighting with editors, you know, uh, they want to change it, the thing would come out, uh, and Heinlein said something to me. He said, <laughs> I, I never take editorial advice from somebody who can't sign a check. Um, <laughs> which maybe, but what he meant is, I'm not interested in being, uh, in being edited like that. I think that's a bad mistake. Uh, I think editing, good editing, the better a writer you are, the more you, the more you gain from good editing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and my relationship with, with David Hartwell is, it, it was, it was certainly that, um, um, and yeah, Paul Wilson has recently said the same that, this is kind of, I, I, I'll, I'll end this, I'll end the editor story with this. David, I was writing, uh, Songs of the Stars. David was the editor. 
Mm-hmm. And I knew that David also edited Poetry Magazine. So I was doing the songs from the, from the stars, and they were, I was having the, you know, like kind of songs that, that, you know, I don't know, I could get away with. I said, I'm gonna, I'll try and do this, I'll try and do this poetry's lyrics. Um, because I know that David knows poetry and will tell me whether I'm making a fool of myself or not, and I can always take it out. And David said to me, uh, no, they're fine. But the, but the, but the prose around them should be in, 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 what, what did he call it? Uh, uh, I, I can't remember the word now, but it was, it, it, you know, like music, like, like, like lyrics, like music. But he called it, uh, uh, something prose. And I said, what's that? What? Yeah, metric prose, metric prose. And I said, what's that? I didn't know that. And he taught me that. He said, we're going to step, we'll, we'll take the 40, we'll take 40 pages of this and we will edit it for, for words that maybe you need a different word that's got, that's got the wrong beat or that's too long and that's too short. Uh, and from that, I learned to write, to write songs. I learned to write the stuff in, in Boy Captain Stale and, and Little Heroes. Uh, well, li- well, Little Heroes was the thing I was my thing about songs, but, uh, uh you know, um, Child of Fortune. So uh, that was uh, you know, a great, great teacher as an editor, mm-hmm. uh, David. And I don't know if there's anybody like that around. No, there weren't too many like that. Yeah. Um, so, Norman, one last question, then I'll let you go. Um, okay. Because it's a okay. Philip K. Dick podcast, I'm wondering, um, I've always asked all of our guests, like, what's the Philip K. Dick work that had the biggest impact on you as a reader? But since he was somebody who you were friendly with, I'm wondering, what's the um, impact that uh, meeting Philip K. Dick had on on you, or, uh, you know, what was that experience like? What did I I don't know, what did what influence me? Uh, Phil K. Dick, meeting Phil K. Dick, because um, most of most of oh, us do. Oh well, that's that. That's another three hours in your walk. <laughs> Phil and I were very close friends. Um, um, Phil was one of my literary heroes before I ever met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started to write, and I was sitting at home in L.A. late at night. I get a call from Phil Dick in um, some. Bug house in, 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 in Canada. And he says to me, uh, like, like we know each other forever. He says, look, uh, I just read your, I just read your novel, um, uh, your, your story, uh, Carson of Angels. And I just broke up my girlfriend and this and that. I'm like, and I'm, cons- I'm, I'm thinking of committing suicide. On the other hand, and I thought I should talk to you before I did. On the other hand, uh, uh I have an offer to be taken down to the, to the college. In, in, in Orange County. Well, well, give me your, give me your honest opinion. What, what should I do? Should I commit suicide or go to Orange County? And it was like, I'm do, we knew each other forever. And I said, well, Phil, personally, I hate Orange County. But on the other hand, you could always kill yourself later. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that makes sense. And that's how I met Phil. I had read all this stuff. He was one of my, you know, uh, the literary heroes, but that's how I met Phil. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and it went on from there. Um, there was no introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never met each other. He just said, well, I, 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 I should call you. Um, and that's 
So I was tremendously influenced by Phil Dick. Uh, multiple, you know, multiple, multiple universes and stuff like that. Uh, but also about something, especially in science fiction, but even in literature general, Phil uh, was one of the first writers to use multiple first person, uh, you know, writings. And although, and maybe I was his about the same time, uh, where, you know, you go from viewpoint to viewpoint. Um, by and large, uh, that was new. Uh, 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 not too many people, there was, there was a couple of things that were not science fiction, done that in the 30s, but it was, uh, as far as I know, Phil and I, and Phil before me, uh, were about the first first people actually use that technique. And it sort of went out from there. Um, we were very, we were very close. And, uh, mm. uh yeah, that's great. Um, I, th- I hope you can tell that we really appreciate your work and your full bibliography. I think you're um, one. Of, you're one of my literary heroes. So it's just an honor to talk well, to you. Well, thank you. And despite this crap of, of, of the technology, you've done a very great I- uh, interview. I just hope. I just hope it broadcasts okay. <laughs> well, and um, thank you, Norman. Uh, you're welcome.